0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. Cars and trucks are moving from gas and diesel to electricity, but displacing oil is harder in the sky.
1: We might see some short haul electric flights over the, the next decade or so, maybe some hydrogen, but really there are fewer options that don't rely on liquid fuels.
0: One promising area is sustainable aviation fuels made from a variety of sources.
2: It's a readily available technology and it's something we can do now. It works well with the existing airframes that are here for a long period of time. And it works with
3: much of the existing infrastructure.
0: So why aren't we seeing this technology used more widely?
3: There will always be airlines that are leading by example in blending sustainable aviation fuel. And there's others that will probably never choose to do so if it's not obligated because it is an added cost.
0: Will sustainable aviation ever take off? Up next on Climate One. For those of us who love to travel, climate guilt can weigh pretty heavily. Civil aviation accounts for about 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and that number is going up. But while electrifying other forms of transportation is already in progress, flying planes on anything other than liquid fuels made from oil remains devilishly difficult. That said, there are options. Sustainable aviation fuels, or SAFs, hold the most promise. They're already approved at blends up to 50%, far higher than the ethanol blends you see when filling up your car. So what's in these fuels and how clean are they? And How widely are they being used? Later in the episode, we'll talk about whether we should fly at all and strategies for low impact travel. But first, we dig into technologies and solutions for decarbonizing air travel. Fred Gattala is Director for Carbon and Sustainability with Advanced Biofuels Canada, an industry association. Scott Carey is Project Manager at the U.S. National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And Stephanie Searle is Director for the Fuels Program and the United States Region at the International Council on Clean Transportation. I asked Stephanie Searle why aviation is such a hard sector to decarbonize.
1: There's few other options. So for passenger cars, for example, great options on the market for battery electric cars. Uh, and we're likely to see that more and more for heavy duty vehicles as well. We very well may see battery electric, hydrogen, marine transport. But for aviation, it's it's really hard to electrify. We might see some short haul electric flights over the the next decade or so, maybe some hydrogen, but really there are fewer options that don't rely on liquid fuels. And so that's where we're, we're seeing really the most interest long-term in sustainable aviation fuels or SAF, which really just means any kind of fuel that's not petroleum that we think is going to, to mitigate climate change.
0: Will the industry embrace these changes voluntarily?
1: Uh, Never, (laughs) like any industry. Um, Because for airlines, cost is such a big issue, and in particular fuel cost, um, because aircraft burn so much fuel. And sustainable aviation fuel is more expensive than petroleum. That's just the reality today. It relies on policy support. And uh, for the foreseeable future, it's just going to to be more expensive. And we know that flyers are also very price sensitive and are going to be sensitive to the increase in prices if airlines start switching to SAF. So we're really going to need policies to push the industry in that direction.
0: Fred, you say that aviation has had a pass for too long. What do you mean by that? And why do you think that sustainable aviation fuel is the best way to decarbonize air travel?
3: Well, I mean, by pass, that that refers to there's currently no policy on aviation fuel that obligates it to reduce its carbon intensity or obligates it to include renewable fuels. Airlines are using those fuels. However, um, we're not nearly at the level that we need to get to climate goals. And we're not at the blend levels that other fuel types like gasoline and diesel have incorporated renewables. So it's a fuel pool yet to be fully decarbonized, where there are a lot of options to do so.
0: Scott, are these fuels ready for prime time?
3: You know, it's a readily available technology, and it's something
2: we can do now. Um, It works well with the existing airframes that are here for a long period of time, and it works with much of the existing infrastructure. There's some challenges there as well in terms of blending and then delivery. Um, But the technology could be used right now, um, assuming we can scale.
0: Fred one of the uh, areas where sustainable aviation fuel is most used is in California so help us understand say where a person is say a person is sitting in a plane at LAX they look out the window and see a person fueling the plane how much sustainable aviation fuel is going into that plane in Los Angeles and where does it come from
3: I think the best data for that is what the California Air Resources Board publishes. They're the regulator that oversees the low-carbon fuel standard, which is the leading policy in the U.S. to reduce transport emissions and get low-carbon fuels into the system. So at 2021, I think CARB reports just over 8 million gallons of SAF being used in California. So that's sustainable aviation fuel. So that's about a quarter of a percent. So- sounds like big numbers. We're growing from virtually zero to eight million gallons. So great job, but 0.25%, we've got a lot more room to go. So with your previous question, is this ready for prime time? So sustainable aviation fuel can be used up to 50% of the fuel blend. Engine manufacturers are making engines that are 100% compatible. So SAF is like You know rudy on the sidelines of the notre dame game saying like put me in coach i'm completely ready i don't have any technical limitations i'm just more expensive and so that's part of the role of policy to do it so the fuel's been blended in california like there's dedicated sustainable aviation fuel production there it's the one of the leading import jurisdictions where fuel everywhere comes from. So when it arrives, and Scott knows a lot more of the details of how this happens, it generally goes into the commingled fuel system at an airport. So those are the large fuel tanks off to the side that have pipelines running to all the gates, and then it's pulled from the gates through through trucks, pump trucks, my own term. There's something far more technical, and goes into the wing. So it's all a commingled fuel set. So the sustainable aviation fuel goes into the big tanks, and then it goes everywhere those pipelines go. So everyone is getting a little bit of it. But the airlines that are actually buying SAF and selling it to their customers, if they opt into corporate programs like United's EcoSkies is one of the leading ones, then they're the ones that are actually paying for it and get the benefit of using the SAF. It's an accounting process that allocates those fuels and emission reductions to to the users and to the airlines of it. So it mixes. And that's one of the reasons why the blend percentages can be so high is that sustainable aviation fuel is jet fuel. It's certified as jet fuel. It's just not from fossil carbon. So you get jet fuel from crude oil or oil sands that we have in Canada or deep underground, but you can get SAF from so many different feedstocks.
0: Stephanie, are you as optimistic as Fred about sustainable aviation fuels?
1: Uh, well, it's certainly right that you can just drop in 50 to even 100% of um, of these fuels right now uh, and that the, the aircraft are ready for them. Um, but, you know, I don't think we're going to see it That quickly. And this is important. We can either do this fast or we can do it well. Um, So there's there's really three buckets of uh, what people call sustainable aviation fuel SAF um, and people disagree on which of these we should be pursuing. One of them is business as usual food-based biofuels. So for example, you could take soybean oil or palm oil and turn it into biofuel to put in a jet very easy, and that's that's going to be one of the cheapest pathways. Um, but that's not going to get us climate mitigation because um, as we use more uh, food crops towards biofuel, we're diverting them from food and feed markets, um, which is going to lead farmers to cut down rainforests and convert land elsewhere around the world to produce more crops. Um, This is something that we've already seen happen uh, with the past 10, 15 years of biofuel being used in the road sector. And it's been litigated and relitigated. And it's just been a huge controversy. And, And we don't want to repeat that in the aviation space. No one wants that. The second bucket is waste oils and fats. And this is the really what a lot of people turn to as the near-term solution for SAF. Um, So this is things like used cooking oil after frying french fries, um, or animal fats like tallow, uh, the parts of the cow that we we don't like to eat. Um, But the problem here is, while those can pretty easily be turned into SAF, there's a very limited resource of them. Um, And if we use them for SAF, we're just gonna be diverting them from biofuel that's already used in the road sector, or from other uses like an animal feed and soap making. Um, So that really can't be part of the long-term solution either. The real long-term solution and the only one that can be scaled up to actually replace a very significant fraction of petroleum demand in aviation um, is the very advanced technologies like cellulosic biofuel that could turn things like trash, like literally the trash in your household, into very uh, low-carbon biofuel that would get us great climate mitigation gains.
0: Fred, your response to those three buckets?
3: Yeah, i I would say that we're pursuing all of those buckets and that we shouldn't really take any of them and say, nope, not going to use that, not going to use bucket two. We're only going to be bucket three. Because we need sustainable aviation fuel now. We need it yesterday. We've got a climate emergency that aviation, you know, should definitely play a role in in helping mitigate. So I'd say that you can look at there's ways to do each of those buckets sustainably. And it's really important that they stack on top of each other. I mean, Stephanie's totally right. The used cooking oil, vegetable oils, plant oils, basically fat oils, and greases are what are in the market now. Like 95% of the sustainable aviation fuel has been from those feedstocks. And I think they can continue to expand and we can layer other things on top of it. Like used cooking oil. That's a great one. I think we're only scratching the surface of what's available out there with used cooking oil. China, Africa, like a lot of these, uh, everywhere in the world, used cooking oil is not necessarily collected to the degree it should be. Um, So I think that we can build up a SAF feedstock supply using sustainability criteria and sending it through regulations that have very firm requirements that. Feedstock should not come from land that has been recently brought into production. You have to have land use change concerns brought into account and be visible within the system. But we've got a lot of different options and we should pursue all of them. And we should do so in an environment where there's actually a pull from the fuel supply sector to have sustainable aviation fuels being used. Scott, I
0: remember 10 plus years ago there was a lot of excitement about drop-in biofuels gonna go in existing engines of of cars and trucks. Uh didn't pan out. Is there similar hope or hype now around sustainable aviation fuels? Do you share the optimism?
2: So it's it's really a question of scale and feedstocks is where it currently is. And you no, know, similar to what Stephanie and Fred have said is what is it competing against? And it just as an example, we were talking to one of our federal colleagues, and said, "Hey, we're working in detail on these different pathways to get to market for for biofuels for SAF." And they said, "Hey, well, we, we have to figure out what to do with the with the Baker's Guild." And I I was completely stumped when they said Baker's Guild. I'm like, "The you mean the people that bake things?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, the the bakers, the actual people, the people that make bread." So they're upset because their oils, the cost of their oil is going up, and so rather than have that oil available at an inexpensive cost to make make bread, it's you now that virgin material is being requested to to make um, sap because they can make money off of it. And I I think one place just to add that they're not ready for production right now, but it's kind of the next generation of fuels is the power of liquids. The idea with power-to-liquid fuels is you take a hydrogen source and potentially uh, direct air capture carbon or another source of carbon and make a liquid fuel out of it. And I'd be
3: curious to see what others think about that as as another pathway. Power-to-liquids is great. It is going to be, hopefully, such a large part of liquid transportation fuels, especially aviation fuels. It's one of the types of fuels that has the best hope of doing what renewable energy has done for the power system. Power to liquids potentially can be a deflationary source of fuel where the cost goes down because they're based on power. Whereas the fuels from the vegetable oil market, even eventually municipal solid waste, like they will have a cost to them that is going to be higher, likely, than the cost to produce low-carbon electricity when you know, you're producing it at a time when it's not needed elsewhere in the grid. So it's a great opportunity. It's certainly over the horizon. So if we wait for power to liquids, we're going to keep emitting a lot more fossil carbon at 35,000 feet with all of the negative environmental consequences that come with that. So power to liquids is great. Should we wait for it before doing anything on SAF policy? Definitely not.
0: Stephanie, that sounds promising and exciting. I hadn't heard of this these categories of technologies before this episode. What I heard Fred just say is indirectly we could have wind and solar-powered airplanes by taking electricity generated by renewables, make them into liquid transportation fuels for airplanes. Um, is that as promising as exciting as it sounds, Stephanie?
1: Um, so that's exactly right. The idea is that you take renewable electricity and use it to split apart water um, and then combine that hydrogen, like Scott said, with um, CO2 that could be directly captured from the air to produce a very low carbon fuel. Uh, so there's great there's great potential there in terms of climate gains. The issues really are in the near term cost. So right now, this is an, probably an even more expensive fuel than turning um, trash or corn stover into biofuel. And we don't expect to see the cost come down to match that of petroleum until somewhere in around the 2050 timeframe. So it's going to be a while until we see really, really high penetration of power to liquids in in aviation for the cost reasons. And then another concern is just to make sure that uh, where we are using power to liquids, that it's coming alongside an expansion of renewable electricity. Because if we don't make sure that it's, it's driving new renewable electricity generation, then we might just be using uh, natural gas, electricity and and things like that. And and that wouldn't be better off at all.
0: And anytime someone says water's involved in a climate solution, I get anxious because I live in California and there's terrible droughts in the Western United States. So when you say, oh, we need to use water, like, well, there's already a lot of water stress uh, driven by climate. So is a water-dependent solution wise.
1: Well, you know, it uses a heck of a lot less water than growing crops for biofuels.
0: You're listening to a Climate One Conversation about sustainable aviation. Coming up, is there a market for battery electric and hydrogen planes?
2: We're talking to a different manufacturer uh, pretty much every week from electric to hydrogen in varying sizes up to roughly 70 seats at this point. You've got a market Roughly 30% of the market is under 500 miles. And that generally works for both of those technologies.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this.
0: Let's get back to our conversation with Fred Gatala, Stephanie Searle, and Scott Carey. I asked Fred Gatala how much airline greenwashing is happening.
3: Oh, that's a good bullseye question. I would say that any airline that is legitimately using sustainable aviation fuel in ongoing operations is, is not greenwashing. They're doing it. Hats off to airlines that are actually buying SAF, blending it. They're paying more than the cost of jet fuel. They're going above and beyond because largely they're not regulated to do so, at least in North America. So... I wouldn't say that's greenwashing. It would be greenwashing if an airline signs up for very severe 2050 net zero targets and then doesn't pursue solutions that are available in the near term. But at the end of the day, it is the job of policy to make these fuels available in the market. You know, there's a there's a there's a phrase in the industry that we need more roads, less roadmaps. It is is time to get going and start using these fuels in a way that is significant that actually moves the needle. So let's get going on it, really. So airlines that are leaning forward, great job. And I think more to come. And the benefit of firm policy is that there will always be airlines that are leading by example in blending sustainable aviation fuel. And there's others that will probably never choose to do so if it's not obligated because it is an added cost. And so you just have to work it into the system. Like when I pull up to the gas station and I fill up my vehicle, I don't get to choose to save a few cents by going with leaded gasoline. No, it's all unleaded because that's for the benefit of the climate and the benefit of all of us who participate in society. It's good not to have leaded gasoline. So I think we need to get to a place where aviation fuel is obligated to be less environmentally destructive than it is right now.
0: Right. And leaded gasoline is also about uh, poison uh, brain development and lots of very personal reasons.
3: And I would say that air pollution from airplanes, from diesel trucks in, you know, underserviced neighborhoods cause really significant impacts. Also, it's, this isn't just greenhouse gases. This is also a lot of human health impacts.
0: Stephanie, uh, are oil companies and refineries fighting this transition? Who's on the other side trying to slow this down?
1: Absolutely, because um, there's a very good chance that uh, if there were strong policies supporting um, sustainable aviation fuel, that the bill would land at the oil companies. So that's the way that a lot of biofuel policies work right now. And in the U.S., the main biofuels policies work by requiring the oil companies to blend biofuel. So um, I'm sure that they're afraid that they're, they're going to be footing the bill here.
0: Right. In climate conversations, we hear that Europe is leading on auto efficiency policies. Is Europe also leading on aviation?
3: On the demand creation side, Europe is definitely leading. So their um, Refuel Aviation EU, their new policy proposal that's had some significant forward steps just this month in the European Parliament, is progressing towards a 2% blend in 2025 and over 80% by 2040 thereabouts. I mean, they are taking it quite seriously. They've got approaches that specify fuel types that can be used. They've It builds on to their renewable energy directive policy that requires certain sustainability criteria. So they're creating firm demand. The US side with a potential SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel Blenders tax credit is certainly taking an incentive side to try to get those fuels into the market. But we see in a sector in transition, there is firm policy coming out that is sending a signal to project developers to say, okay, there is a pony here. There's going to be a market that I can produce and sell into. But at the end of the day, the technology has proven The fuels are ready. You just can't push a rope. So policy's got to provide that pull for the fuels to be used by airlines who are really ready and willing to use it. It's just not that available yet. And
0: Stephanie, one of the reasons that aviation and shipping are some of the hardest to decarbonize is because of their international nature. Planes and ships move around and no one country or state has a real hold on them over, they would say, a factory or a refinery. We're in a situation now where the US EPA um, has had its ability to regulate under the Clean Air Act narrowed. So is this going to be up to a state by state approach? But then the state by state approach comes up against the Commerce Clause and saying, you know, can't can't regulate uh, things that are interstate. So, what's the policy context here, and and what do you see as the most promising policy pathway?
1: So, Europe's really doing something innovative here on both aviation and shipping. They're requiring uh, about half of of international travel for each aviation and shipping to have some fraction of uh, renewable fuel blending. So, that's the first time that we've really seen something significant addressed um, addressing fuel use on, on international travel, but they're moving ahead with it, which is which is uh, very exciting.
0: Scott, we've been talking about sustainable aviation fuels, or SAFs, which generally refer to liquid fuels that are drop-in replacements of jet fuels we've been hearing, and they're available today, certified up to 50%. But it's not the only way to decarbonize air travel. What are some other ways, say, battery electric planes? Uh, what's the status of those?
2: At the lab, we're we're talking to a different manufacturer uh, pretty much every week from electric to hydrogen um, in varying sizes up to roughly 70 seats at this point. You've got a market, roughly 30% of the market is under 500 miles. And that generally works for both of those technologies. And so we see there's opportunity there. And in the discussions we've had with some of the regional carriers, you know, what we call the the hub and spoke discussion is the, the small towns, the small rural towns that need to connect into a large, large hub, but that's where the opportunity really is. And to improve on, you know, we have a program in the U.S. called the Essential Air Service Program that tries to keep service into some of these small communities for business. Um, it's their only connection unless they drive three to five hours to a, to a large city. We see a lot of promise there um, and it's growing very quickly.
0: Do these small regional airports have the necessary electric power capacity to start recharging a bunch of electric or hydrogen planes?
2: So I think the first thing to think about is most of these locations do not have, you know, 20 flights a day. They'll have two. And so if you start, we did a a quick study and looked at essential air service routes with just a nine seat aircraft out of Denver to rural Nebraska and and rural Colorado. And we found that the the locations they were flying to weren't the the place where there was an issue with the amount of availability of energy. The place that we saw the concern was when they flew back on the banks into the large hub. You had these very large surges in very short amounts of time. And so that gets into charging, charge management requirements, and other things that can be managed, but the cost is significantly lower once you can get that infrastructure in place, we see there's some opportunity there. Um, there's two manufacturers that are moving fairly quickly. They're they're hoping for 2026 to be flying. So then, but then there's a scale factor from there to where they have to build those aircraft for the airlines to use on those small routes. It's not going to replace the medium or long long haul anytime soon, but it's another another piece of the puzzle.
0: Not long ago, people would say, would have dismissed the possibility of battery-powered airplanes. Uh, so that's promising. How about, Scott, hydrogen fuel cell planes? One of the advantages of the hydrogen advocates, say, for, for cars is they can fuel, refuel a lot faster than electricity. So how about hydrogen planes?
2: If, if you talk to our, our hydrogen program lead, he jokingly will say, I can charge much faster mm-hmm. than you can if, with your electric vehicle. He likes to say that because he he can uh, generally the charging speeds for hydrogen are getting on par with moving uh, liquid petroleum. Um, now it's just the storage and delivery systems go with that. You Note know, in addition to the hurdle of getting a vehicle certified, you know, so there's there's still a lot of challenges there, but there's also some opportunity.
0: So people might be able to fly on an electric plane in just a few years. All sorts of innovation happening. Stephanie, it's been 20 years since the Concorde flew its last flight. Now several companies are striving to bring back supersonic aviation. These new planes use massive amounts of fuel, and these companies say they will rely on sustainable aviation fuel we've been talking about that doesn't now exist. What do you think of this new push for supersonic travel?
1: Now that I would call greenwashing because supersonic travel burns five to seven times more fuel per passenger per kilometer than a regular aircraft. Um, And we already talked about how sustainable aviation fuel is going to be more expensive than petroleum fuel, and that's going to hurt airlines' bottom line. Now just multiply that by five to seven times. No one is going to pay for that.
0: But we live in a world where you know the one percent has a lot of money to throw around and money to burn. I could see them buying a crazy expensive ticket to fly to New York to London in what three hours Fred there's a you know there is a pathway that says that elites can buy down technology uh you know that was Tesla's model to make an electric car and then a you know more affordable car. how do you see the prospect of more supersonic aviation, that would mean a lot of biofuel buyers potentially for your your association.
3: That's right. Look, when it comes to air travel, I love to travel. The idea of traveling farther and faster is extremely appealing. However, it's got to be done in a way that's environmentally, socially responsible. Um, It looks like we have the tools to do that with sustainable aviation fuel, with the, the seven pathways that are certified by ASTM, the technical certification body for jet fuel. And there's many more, hundreds more, um, that are approaching finalization that are in the pipeline to be fully certified. So if we can stop burning fossil carbon in the jet fuel, if we can stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere through combusting jet fuel, I think planes should fly five times as fast and use five times as many fuels. Obviously, someone's going to have to pay for that. I don't see the entire sector shifting over to um, supersonic. I'm sure there's a lot of um, issues with it when you extrapolate that to um, it being a predominant source of travel. But It should be an option because I think we love to travel as a species. There's tremendous economic and social and wellness values from being able to travel, whether it's short distances using electricity and hydrogen or super long distances, super fast using supersonic. So if we can just remove the environmental impact from that, we should pursue it. But We should be sure that we can remove the environmental impact from it. It shouldn't be a build it now and then we'll decarbonize it later. No, it's got to be part and parcel because we've kind of gotten into the red line part of when we must absolutely do something to get to 1.5 degrees. So we can't add something. It would be completely irresponsible to add something that just ups the fuel burn at even higher altitude than current commercial Dreamliners fly. And do so in a way that's trust us will decarbonize it it's got to be part and parcel and i think you see you know boom supersonic and others that are really signing up for using carbon neutral if not carbon negative fuels so i think folks get that and i totally agree with you greg like the one percent will do whatever they want so we may have like you know private um you know wheels up style supersonic jets and that really sounds like a lot of fun to be honest
0: Let's get out your crystal balls and ask you of the pathways we've been talking about 5, 10, 10 years out, what are we going to see in aviation? How much electric, hydrogen, fuels at what type?
1: 10 years out, I think we're well less than 1% in terms of electric and hydrogen aircraft, um, more more perhaps after that point. And in the U.S., I think we could maybe get up to a couple percent blending of biofuel. But what I'm really afraid of is that uh, the easy way out is going to be for that to be food-based biofuels um, that are going to drive deforestation and not get us any closer to our climate goals.
0: Fred, what's in your crystal ball 10 plus years out?
3: I think it's in all of the above strategy. We're going to have. I agree with the the penetration rates um, that Stephanie suggested for electricity and hydrogen, but I think if we can get more towards thirty percent of sustainable aviation fuel blend in jet fuel, that would be a significant progression. In the the specs, take it to fifty percent. You can blend up to fifty percent. However, if you get up towards that upper end of the specification, you have to change the fossil jet fuel that you're blending with to make sure you have a sufficient amount of aromatics in the jet fuel. Of course, different SAF, sustainable aviation fuel pathways have different aromatic profiles, but I think we'll be just shy of the max blending specification. Yes, aircraft manufacturers and engine manufacturers are doing 100% sustainable aviation fuel compliant jet engines. But if only some of the planes can take 100% SAF and others can't, and they're all hooked up to the same fueling infrastructure, we're going to have an issue where some fuels can go to some planes and others can't, and that's not going to work with, with aviation. So I think we'll be hopefully above 30%. And I think that clear signals That that is where we're going, not voluntarily, but through stepwise, year by year, additive regulations. Or what are going to be the required signal for sustainable aviation fuel project developers to invest, and importantly for feedstock suppliers to invest? Because these aren't markets that we just flip on and flip off. We've got to build them, and so that sends the right signals to farmers to foresters to everyone else in the feedstock supply chain to start producing more in an efficient manner. And also, we need to just be more efficient with everything we do related to biomass. There's no reason why we should be wasting as much as we do when this stuff is extremely valuable, important to our mobility, our nutrition, and all other types of needs that make make life possible right now.
0: Fred, Scott, and Stephanie, thanks for coming on Climate One to talk about the future of aviation.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: You're listening to a conversation about the future of sustainable aviation. Coming up, how can we be more mindful when we travel?
4: There are ways to book climate-conscious flights, fly newer aircraft, fly economy, choose regular size aircraft, and fly direct.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues.
5: Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.
0: Mark Twain once wrote travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Traveling is a great joy, creating experiences and memories that last a lifetime. Unfortunately, tourism overall is also the cause of about 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That can be a difficult guilt to carry for anyone who understands the reality of the climate crisis. I asked Christina Beckman, co-creator of Tomorrow's Air and vice president of the Adventure Travel Trade Association, how she reconciles working in the travel industry while also caring about the climate.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've grappled with this a lot in my Professional career, I've got 20 years in sustainable tourism. I always felt like I was on kind of the right side. You know, we were advocating for nature and ecotourism, where the funding was supporting conservation projects and local cultures. And I never saw really the contradiction until climate was like this drumbeat in the background the last 10 years. And we were doing research papers on adventure travel guides, for example, on the front lines of climate. So we we saw this kind of moving like, hmm, I wonder about these emissions. I wonder, and I wrote a paper years ago that sort of explored the crux of this, like travel does so much good on the ground. We do. We are, and we think about the biodiversity crisis. Our travel revenues are supporting biodiversity in places where they Depend on tourism revenues for that. So there's all the good on the ground, and yet all the problem in the air, the emissions from not only, you know, flights get a lot of attention, but if you look end to end at the emissions of travel, there's a study that came out in 2018 that said 8% of global emissions come from travel, and that's lodging, meals, accommodation, shopping, transport. And we find that the people who do the most travel are affluent people and they go places and they have sort of high demands. So, so that sort of central contradiction is actually what, what is underneath Tomorrow's Air, this carbon removal collective we initiated, because I, I felt like to have integrity and to be able to sleep at night, we would have to be doing all we can to support carbon removal solutions that can help us sort of reconcile this conflict. How did
0: you personally become Mm -hmm. a climate-conscious traveler? What was your aha moment?
4: My aha moment was in Antarctica, actually. I mentioned it was sort of this growing realization. uh, But in 2018, I had the opportunity to travel to Antarctica as part of an expedition with Robert Swan, who is the, he he says he's the only guy crazy enough to walk to both the North and South Pole. And he has this foundation called the 2041 Foundation. And that is the year that the Antarctic Treaty expires. And he believes that if you can get people to Antarctica to understand its importance as a place of peace and science, then when 2041 comes around, we will be be in position to protect it. So I was on this expedition with his foundation and a travel company called the Explorer's Passage. And the programming on that involved climate lectures and also, of course, trips out in the Zodiac in this, through the brash ice and the whales and the penguins. And, and also this, you know, it was jarring to be some places that were sunny and iceless. And when I spoke with other people who I know who have been to Antarctica, they were surprised at how far we were going in the archipelago. And, and that, you know, it was impossible to be there and not, you know, there I was having an adventure travel experience, trip of a lifetime. And all throughout the day, we would have sort of climate lectures. And then in the afternoon, they would put you in kind of workshops. I felt like I was a little bit at like, I don't know, Antarctic business school summer camp. And the workshops would be like, work in your team to come up with a solution to, you know, fill in this problem. So I really took everything there to heart and kind of came back and was like, how can I use my platform? What, you know, we all have a platform. We all have a sphere of influence. And so I, thought, what can we do in travel? Even though, you know, I'm at the Adventure Travel Trade Association, we are not a massive multi-million dollar organization, but but we have a voice, we have a platform. So that was the, really the catalytic moment for me was to be in Antarctica and feel it and also be learning some basic facts that I actually didn't
0: have. Yeah. Very parallel to my experience where I learned and it went from an abstraction, an intellectual idea of something far away Mm -hmm. to being a lived experience that you Mm -hmm. touch and and breathe. It becomes really real. So sounds like you're saying we shouldn't just stop traveling. If someone's a climate conscious traveler, what should they do? What are your recommendations beyond flying less?
4: Well, I, so Make those trips meaningful. Think about your flight and there are ways to book climate conscious flights. One of the things uh, that has been reminded to me or um, encouraged is fly like a nerd, which is fly newer aircraft, which are more efficient. Fly economy, if we have fewer unfilled seats. I know flying economy is hard, especially if you can afford to fly higher (laughs) and and you're going further choose regular size aircraft, the very small aircraft and very large aircraft are less efficient and fly direct. And I think when you get into places, you can, you should really ask questions and look at where you're staying and what kind of energy, you know, our association does events in destinations around the world. We now ask our host convention centers and hotels, where does your energy come from? How are you handling food waste? How are you mm-hmm. handling water? I mean, there's a lot in there um, that can reduce your footprint surrounding, you know, not just not just the flight. The
0: airplane. Yeah. And searching for a flight on Google, they highlight the lowest emitting flights. Do you know about that? And is it how, what's, what's underneath that? Because that was um, new to me when
4: preparing for this episode. Yeah, those calculations. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, when you get really into the weeds of the emissions associated with different flights and the mechanics. So people will argue over over what uh, math is being used underneath. So Mm -hmm. anyway, yes, Google has that. You can look at that. It's great to know. I think it's terrific to know what your emissions are and take those into consideration. You can then choose to fly a different route, you might choose to take a train, especially, you know, summertime is a lot of people are going to Europe. I recently got switched on to this thing called seat 61. If you've, uh, if you go there, it's a, he's a hobbyist. It's the man in seat 61. And it's all about trains and the best train connections and how to link trains throughout Europe. And it's a highly recommended website run by a hobbyist guy who loves trains.
0: When I buy a ticket online, um, there's sometimes an option to pay an extra $50, $20 or so, depending on the distance. Do you trust those offsets that airlines are selling?
4: The you know Offsets have been much maligned, I think, and there have been some bad actors in the realm of carbon offsets. I, however, do think that most of what you see on airline websites, for example, in preparation for this, I was looking at what some of Alaska Airlines offsets are. If you dig in there, they're supporting a forest in South Carolina, an 18,000 acre bird and wildlife sanctuary. I'm okay giving $20 to that. They're supporting a forest in Alaska, part of Prince Prince Wales Island in the Alaska panhandle. These projects, most of what you're going to see on an airline are going to be Vera gold standard verified projects. And I think um, putting money to support those worthy projects is worth it. The thing to remember in there, though, the um, complication with offsets is that it leaves you with the feeling that you've solved the problem. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've balanced my, I've balanced it out. I'm even. We're good. The reality is we're not good. We're way over what we need. So, you've emitted that CO2, it's going to stay in the atmosphere until we remove it. We have trillions of tons of stored CO2. If everything stopped today, if we all stopped completely, it would take 900 years for natural systems to cycle through all the CO2 that's stored in our atmosphere today. So the the challenge with offsets is that it leaves you feeling like you've solved something. When what you've done is something helpful. And we still have this whole other category of work to do, which is dramatic reductions and carbon removal.
0: So that's why you're, you know, in, in carbon direct removal, we've done episodes on nature does that, technology is do, doing that, it's expensive, it's early days, it's getting a lot more attention. So are you trying to, what, create a revenue stream for carbon removal to address the that legacy carbon that's up there?
4: That's it. That's exactly it. We are trying to rally travel to help generate demand for carbon removal innovations. Tomorrow's Air is partnered with Climeworks right now, which is a direct air capture carbon removal provider. We're adding other uh, hybrid tech and tech solutions into our portfolio. What, you know, back to offsets, when we want to be carbon neutral, when we're balancing our emissions, that sends us down a path of looking for the lowest cost offset. And that has caused us over many years to ignore investments in these removal technologies, which we know we need. And the way to bring those costs down is to deploy them. You know, There's this very well-documented learning rate with technologies. And as you deploy them further, they become more efficient and less expensive. And and so today, you know, Tomorrow's Air is doing this by trying to bring travelers and travel companies to the cause. We're not the only ones out there, right? Like uh, Shopify and Meta, these come Alphabet. These companies are saying we're going to spend on carbon removal technologies at any cost, things that are high cost, low volume today, but have the potential to be low cost, high volume in the future. And we, you know... We don't know that these are all the perfect solution. Nobody's proposing that a direct air capture um, is the only solution. It's one of many. Of course, you know, that's why I would still as an individual contribute to carbon offsets, contribute to valuable nature solutions. We know we have to have that. Plus, we love nature. <laughs> like where are we gonna go hike and play and ski and you know, these are sacred spaces. There's so many reasons to support that kind of thing. And if we can help stimulate demand for some of the technologies, we will have them at scale when we really, really need them in the next 20 years.
0: I guess I get the reason or the logic of large corporations with a lot of money uh, buying down the cost of direct air capture that's about 200 times more than other offset programs. I just wonder about retail travelers, if that's the best use of their funds or uh, they that $15 Fifteen dollars or twenty dollars per flight might be better spent on the offsets of today. I sub- I buy them sometimes. I'll double buy them because I'm not sure that they're hundred percent effective. So I'll spend thirty dollars instead of fifteen, thinking like, "Oh, I'm doubling." You know, a little bit of insurance uh, for any kind of questions about the the effectiveness of or the additionality of those offsets. You know, so is this the best way to direct retail consumer dollars?
4: Right. Well, I think thinking about it in terms of the best. When we put ourselves in a mindset of what is the best use of this $1, the best use of that $1 is across the spectrum of solutions. And so I firmly believe that individual travelers should engage with carbon removal tech. That signals it's not just the financial contribution that we can make en masse that can be meaningful, but it also... And we are engaging with the subject and it signals to policymakers and investors that there's a public that cares and is looking at this.
0: So it's not just about the money. It's about, yeah, dollars, attention uh, follows dollars, right?
4: I I am firmly of the mindset that we are all in this together. We are all co-conspirators in our climate crisis. We all got us there. And now we all have to kind of dive in and help get us out. But what I have learned is that people like to take action. People like to engage. I feel much better feeling like I'm contributing than sitting here wringing my hands and hoping that the tech bros and we have a president right now who's in favor of climate, but who knows who's going to be our president in the next few years, you know, waiting around for governments and richer people to take action, I find very uh, aggravating. And so it's it's feels good, actually, to kick in and be part of that movement.
0: Earlier in this episode, uh, we talked about sustainable aviation fuels and learned they're only a quarter of a percent of the fuel mix, and that's in places like California where there's something of some pressure in a market that's more oriented toward ground transportation. So, you know, how is that not greenwashing to have a quarter of a percent and then, you know, splash it on websites and say, oh, you know, we're flying green.
4: So it's a journey, right? I mean, sustainable aviation fuel is 5 times more expensive today. We don't have all the um the infrastructure to get this fuel to the right places. It we have to everything starts somewhere. And so I think I would rather I mean, I know there have been bad actors and greenwashing is a problem. I think we've gotten to a place a little bit though where we're so ready to doubt and discredit an organization's effort that some places are just afraid. You know, a lot of businesses are afraid. They're on the sidelines waiting to get hammered. So when I see sustainable aviation fuel in the mix, that makes me happy. And I understand that it's a process and it, we can't expect for anybody to be on hundred percent sustainable aviation fuel today.
0: Right, because the airline is a low-profit margin business. Uh, aviation fuel is a commodity. You know, consumers choose their flights largely based on costs. So there's a lot of pressure against airlines paying more, even a penny more for fuel. And, and sustainable aviation fuel is more than a penny. So as we wrap up, what are some takeaway tips for people wrestling with their flying impact
4: Think about where you're going carefully and why you're going and what you're going to do there and try to make sure that when you go someplace, you're being as responsible there as you can be. Know that your travel dollars benefit local economies, especially if you're making an effort to eat locally, stay locally, hire local guides. And like I said, look at how to be most efficient when you're booking your flights. And consider joining Tomorrow's Air and contributing to carbon removal with permanent storage.
0: And consider trains. Uh,
4: And consider trains. Totally. (laughs) Seat 61.
0: Christina Beckman is co-creator of the carbon removal project Tomorrow's Air and vice president of the Adventure Travel Trade Association. Thanks, Christina, for sharing your insights today about travel, air travel, and adventure.
4: Thanks so much, Greg.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about decarbonizing aviation. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about changing our lifestyles and habits can be hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of our society and lives. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review if you're listening on Apple. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper conversations about all aspects of the climate emergency, travel, diet, everything. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.
5: Hey, Climate One fans, we've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com climate one.